looking at one of my favorite passages about my least favorite topic. And uh, as you open the Word of God, what you'll find in it today is one of the stiffest, sternest, hardest warnings that Jesus gives, uh, warning people about going to hell and the reality that people will face there. And we need to understand these things and to believe what Jesus teaches us here about them, not only because they are true, but because they reveal to us the absolute urgency of believing the Gospel. You must be born again. That is the consistent testimony of Scripture over and over and over and over again. And people who do not believe the Gospel, who who reject the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins and was raised from the dead, He is the only way into the presence of God for eternity. And Jesus warns us out of that place. In fact, at least twice as often uh, as, uh, as he talks about heaven, he talks about hell. And uh, he talks about it with more vividness, with more detail, and with more urgency. Uh, and so we want to see what he has to say to us. Uh, but rather than simply give us a multi-point theological treatise, what Jesus does instead is he tells us a story. And that story is designed to wake us up from comfortable self-delusion. And it performs that task very well. In fact, I would say that reading the story of the rich man and Lazarus is the gospel equivalent of like getting a five-gallon bucket of ice water poured over your head first thing in the morning while you're still asleep. All right, You are all of a sudden thoroughly awakened if you understand uh, this story. It is designed to wake up the spiritually slumbering. So if you, have your, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Uh, the story picks up in uh, verse 19 and goes to the end of chapter 16. And if you would stand, if you're able and willing, in honor of God's Word as I read. This is what the Word of God says. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your life received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, He said to him, They do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, this story hits us square in the face with the fact that life is loaded, that we are all presented with the choice, heaven or hell, bow our knee before You in worship or in submission as a recipient of Your blessing or a recipient of Your judgment. Father, I pray right now that if there's anyone here who has thus far in their life rejected Christ as Savior, that they would indeed repent for a man has risen from the dead. To tell them about these things. Father, may we not be so hard-hearted as to reject His Word. May we not be so hard-hearted as to forget the urgency of sharing the Gospel with those who are facing this kind of judgment. Father, we pray that You would wake us up this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before I explore with you the details of this passage, we need to back up a little bit and look at the context of verses 14 to 18. And if you look there, uh, the Pharisees have been listening to Jesus' teaching and they have heard what He has just said about making investments uh, of your life and your money of, in, the, in the kind of things that pay off in eternity. And then we read in verse 14 that since they love money, they reject what Jesus teaches them. And in fact, like a lot of people, uh, maybe even like some of us, when we encounter teaching we, that we don't like, things that, we, that rub us the wrong way, rather than uh, repent and turn, what they do is just reject what it says in the Word. If the, if the Word of God hits a little too close to home, I don't want that. I don't like that. And there's more we could say about these verses, but in these verses, verses 14 to 18, we need to understand that what Jesus is telling them is confronting them. And He is also then with this story that we've just read, confronting them with the reality that faith in Him is their only hope. So with that in mind, look at the details of the story with me. Uh, in, in verse 19, we meet an unnamed rich man. And he is, by the standards of his time, very rich indeed. Uh, he went about, Jesus says, clothed in purple and fine linen. Uh, this is, in those days, the clothing of royalty. Uh, the purple dye was, uh, was developed by a little, there's a little crustacean that lives in the ocean, and they would gather these up, and they would crush them, and then that, uh, the crushing of those little, the little snails turns into a, a deep purple dye. And it was very expensive. And you had to uh, be a person of considerable means to be clad in purple. This was considered 
uh, uh, like I say, the clothing of royalty. Uh, he also feast, feasted sumptuously every day, meaning the guy is unusually wealthy because normally, even for rich people, a feast was something that was a holiday occasion. You know, maybe it was Thanksgiving, you had a feast, right? Uh, if it was your birthday, there was a feast. But this guy has a feast every day. So in our terms, this guy is an ancient one percenter. You feel me? This is a guy who is uh, daily dropping in at Spago's or Le Bernardin or the French Laundry and having lunch and dinner every day. Places that are $300 a plate. Sumptuous meals every day. Uh, to, the, to the Jewish people uh, of Jesus' day, and certainly to the money-loving Pharisees, looking at the rich man's life, they would have thought that this man, the rich man, was very near to God. Because in their minds, riches equals God's approval and blessing. In fact, there was a Jewish proverb in the time of Jesus that went this way, Those whom God loves, He maketh rich. Right? And that was the idea. Now, anybody heard anything about this? Like, anybody? There's, there's like contemporary examples of this, right? There's a guy with a, with a million-dollar smile you can watch on cable TV that will tell you that you need to get your best life now. Not in eternity. Now. Right? Um, that's the idea that that it's a and it's a very attractive notion, right? That wealth is a sign of God's blessing. Does that mean that it's wrong to be rich? No. But how you use your wealth is a sign of what's in your heart. And on top of that, um, the two are not necessarily equivalent. God isn't necessarily putting his stamp of approval on your life just because you have a bunch of money. And in contrast to him, we meet this poor beggar, Lazarus. Now, this is unusual. This is an unusual detail um, in a parable that Jesus tells because almost always the people in the story are not named. Whenever Jesus tells a story, he talks about a father or a son or a certain man, or a person, or a Samaritan, or what have you. But in this one, the person is named. And, and the name Lazarus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eliezer, which means, interestingly enough, blessed by God. And we meet this beggar, and it says in the text that he was laid at the rich man's gate. Meaning that Lazarus did not get there on his own. He is most likely, therefore, crippled. He was put there. He's probably paralyzed. And as a result of that, he has sores. These are probably bed sores. If you lay, as one of the dangers of being that you encounter as a handicapped person is that 
laying in the same place over a long period of time yields sores on the side of your body that you lay on just from the pressure of your own body weight in that same spot over time. So he is covered with sores, unable to move. He is also hungry, the text tells us. He is longing for the scrap food that the rich man discards. This guy is not only rich enough to feast, he's rich enough to have leftovers. Lazarus is probably having to compete also with the kind of street dogs that lived in cities uh, then and still exist in many places around the world today. If you go, if you go to India, uh, you'll see cows wandering the street. Uh, you'll also see all kinds of little dogs. And they don't belong to anybody. They're just little mutts. They're about yay high. They have curly tails and pointy ears. And there's a bunch of them. And they just kind of roam in packs uh, around the cities and towns. They're everywhere. And if you go to Congo, you'll see the same thing. If you go, uh, honestly, anywhere in most of the developing world, this is what you'll see. You'll see these packs of street dogs. And you'll see beggars, very much like Lazarus. And this, this guy is competing with the street dogs for the garbage that the rich man throws out. And while he is laying there, the, the same dogs come and lick Lazarus' sores. That's miserable. I don't know if they're testing to see if he's dead yet or what, but he is in a miserable condition. And, and you, you need to understand that in contrast to the rich man, people in Lazarus' day would have thought that this man has done something to deserve his fate. Remember, when Jesus' disciples meet the man who was born blind, they ask him, they ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that the guy was born blind? Right? And so the thought is, if you're suffering like this, you must have done something, you probably deserve it. Even though your name is blessed by God, it's obvious to us that you've been cursed by God. And uh, that's why you're, you have the life that, you, that you're living because you get what you deserve. And this is the kind of person that the Pharisees, who were people of high status, well-respected, wealthy people, would have looked down on and disregarded as someone whom God has cursed. Now, even though Lazarus' name means favored by God, his earthly life does not in any way look like that is the case. How many of y'all would swap places in your current life with Lazarus? Fighting for table scraps and being licked on by wild dogs. Yeah, no. I'm not picking that, right? Uh, and in comparison to the rich man, it certainly looks like one is more favored than the other. But nevertheless, both men one day die. 
and their destinies could not be any more distinct. The scripture says that Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Now, you may remember when we talked about the parable of the lowest seat, how Jewish banquets are arranged from the host at one end of the table, kind of in a U-shape all the way around to the lowest place. Abraham is the founder of the Jewish nation. He is in a position of great honor. You know who is right next to him? At his side? Lazarus. Well, that's quite a trans- transformation of circumstances. And, and it is as if the rich man is looking from hell to the great banquet in the, uh, in the presence of God, and there is Abraham, and right next to him is Lazarus. Abraham is the friend of God, according to the Scriptures. He's the man of faith. Uh, So Lazarus is the most honored guest and present in heaven next to Abraham. Where's the rich man? Jesus says he's in Hades in torment. So let me ask you a question. Which man was really blessed by God? I'll give you a hint. It was not the rich man. Notice there are four other important truths here in this text that this passage teaches us. Number one, uh, notice this. The rich man is a Jewish guy. That's why he calls out to Abraham and addresses him how? Father Abraham. If you're a Gentile, you can't do that. And so he calls out and addresses him as Father Abraham, yet he is in hell. What should we conclude from that? That Jesus is teaching all those who are listening, including the Pharisees who think that because of their status and their ancestry that they are in good with God, that genetics doesn't get you necessarily a spot in glory. Who your daddy is doesn't guarantee you a place in heaven. And secondly, you need to notice that the rich man is enduring conscious punishment. Conscious punishment. In other words, there is no annihilation. Sometimes people want to want to posit this idea that when you go to hell, you don't you're not there very long. Um, the reality is actually quite different. You experience conscious punishment before uh, the face of God, enduring His wrath for eternity. Because here's the problem with annihilation. Just just let me give you an aside on this, okay? Either your punishment in hell deals with your sin or it doesn't. If it does, then there's no reason that you would be would not be released, right? If it doesn't, it is unrighteous of God to let you out. Right? So you're not annihilated. And I'll show you the reason why. 
It is because this guy, like all sinners, remains a sinner even in hell. His attitude is not changed by his experience, even there under God's judgment. So, the rich man is Jewish, so his genetics don't get you a spot in glory. The rich man is enduring conscious punishment. And that's there to remind us that we are not simply invited into heaven. We are warned out of hell. Jesus is saying, you don't want to do this. You do not want to go here. Notice this also. The rich man's riches don't help him at all. If there were a way to buy your way out of hell, then this guy would surely be rich enough to do it. He can't even buy a drop of water from the fingertip of Lazarus to touch his tongue for a moment. So don't be deceived, men and women. Money does not buy escape from hell. Despite the fact that there is a church, or a so-called church, that teaches people that it does. Money will not buy your way out, or anyone else's way out. And finally, notice the rich man's attitude. And this is where we see the guy is still unredeemed. He is still a sinner. He assumes that he has the right to ask Abraham himself or Lazarus to be sent to him. As if Lazarus is still beneath him socially, even though Lazarus is honored in heaven while this guy is in hell. You see that? He assumes that he has the right to order Lazarus around. He doesn't even ask Lazarus. He says, Abraham, tell him to do, to do this for me. And then when Abraham tells him no, he says, well, then tell him to do this for me. This guy is in hell and he still thinks he's in charge. This is a degree of pride that is so great he's not even aware that it, he has it. The thing is, men and women, is that sinners who go to hell remain in their sin there. The reason they don't get out is that they never repent. They are never ever changed into anything but sinners, which is why they never get out. They keep sinning and sinning and sinning and remaining in rebellion against God. You can't buy your way into heaven, and by the way, hell is inescapable. Look at verses 25 and 26. Abraham tells the rich man to remember that he and Lazarus had very different lives before their death, and now there is no comfort for him in hell, whereas Lazarus is comforted with him in heaven. And notice, too, that there is no way to cross from one destiny to the other. The point is, is that physical death closes the door on opportunities to believe in the Lord and escape from hell. 
on the other side of God's judgment, there is no escape. There is no higher court of appeals. There's no rescue. And there's no relief. in even the smallest degree. No one can go from paradise to hell. And no one can go from hell to paradise. In other words, if you wind up in hell, there will not be a second chance. All of the chances that you have are in this life which tells us that the only priority in this life must be to ensure that you are right with God so that you wind up in the spot you want to be in. Amen? That is the only priority that matters. Everything else is not even secondary if this is reality. And it is. And if you look at verses 27 to 31, what you see is that you need to believe the gospel before time runs out. Because you don't know how much time you have. This is where the story in, in verse 27 takes a surprising turn because the rich man all of a sudden understands the full horrible nature of his situation. And so he makes this other request that Abraham would send Lazarus to warn his brothers that they might not come to this terrible place. And Abraham says, look, there's no need to do that because they, his, your brothers all have Moses and the prophets. Now, Moses and the prophets, you should know, is a shorthand way of speaking of the entire Old Testament. Um. The, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. The rest of the books in the Old Testament are referred to as written by the prophets. And so Moses and the prophets is they have the entire Old Testament telling them, warning them about what they need to do. And the Scriptures, therefore, rightly understood, are fully sufficient to tell you both that you are lost and how to be saved from sin and death and hell. And so the man argues, no, 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 I need someone to go back because even though my brothers have the Scriptures, they don't believe, but they would believe if someone came back from the dead to tell them. And Abraham's answer is just a devastating truth. That people who will not believe the Scriptures will not believe even if someone comes back from the dead. Now, just to clarify things even further, remember why Jesus is telling this story. He is telling them because his, the Pharisees who have been listening to Him and mocking His teaching love money, and they think that their Jewish ancestry plus their money and status are proof that they are blessed by God and that therefore they will be in heaven alongside Abraham. And on top of that, they regard themselves as keepers of the Mosaic Law. They think, well, if anybody is righteous enough before God to enter into heaven, it's us. And what Jesus is telling them is that your current status tells you nothing about your eternal destiny. Nothing about your position or your riches or your ancestry or your so-called law-keeping matters if you have rejected 
Jesus as your Savior. Jesus is the one with authority to determine what obedience to the law really means, as he teaches in verse 18. He is the one to whom the law and the prophets point. In fact, he is the point of the entire Old Testament and all of the rest of the Scriptures too. And that means that if they reject him, then just like the rich man, they will spend eternity in the inescapable judgment of God. In him, unless they turn away from that rejection and put their faith in Jesus. You know what's really amazing about this? This is a living testimony of God's grace and of Jesus' grace to these guys. Because if you fit the chronology of the scriptures together in the right way, what you understand is that either on the day that Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, his friend Lazarus is sick, he tells this story about a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Or on the day that he is going to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, that one of these two days is the day that Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees. But in either case, within a week of telling this story, within, I think, about five days of telling this story at a maximum, Jesus is going to go just a little south of where he is, down to the city of Bethany, and raise a man named, in case you missed the point, guys, Lazarus from the dead. And that that resurrection of Lazarus is going to point in an inescapable way to all of the Pharisees. I am who I claim to be. I am the one who determines obedience to the law or not obedience to the law. And if you are striving to gain acceptance before God by obedience to the law, you will be condemned. And so therefore, you need to believe in me as Messiah. And to prove to you who I am, I will raise a man named Lazarus from the dead. That the same name that you just heard about, about a guy coming back from the dead. He is pounding down their walls of rejection with a story that they cannot ignore, followed by a miracle that is too big to miss. How do the Pharisees respond? John tells us in John chapter 11, verses 47 to 50, this is what the Word of John says. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So a week later, Caiaphas and the council had Jesus put to death at the hands of the Roman overlord. 
And three days after that, Jesus himself was raised from the dead. Matthew tells us that on the day that Jesus died, many righteous people whose tombs were located just outside the city walls were also raised from the dead. Now, I've been to Jerusalem, and they have on the east side of the city just row after row after row of tombs. And some of them are even identified, the tombs of the prophets. So I don't know who was raised from the dead on the same day that Jesus died, but Matthew tells us a number of folk from right outside the temple walls were out walking around out of their graves. So Lazarus was resurrected. A bunch of righteous people got out of their tombs on the day Jesus died, and then three days later, Jesus walks out of his own tomb. As if to say to these people, do you get it yet? I am the resurrection and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. After seeing all that happen, did Caiaphas and the chief priests and the Pharisees repent of their rejection of Jesus and believe in Him as Messiah? No. They did not. What Jesus says here at the end of this parable proves true. They do not believe even though many more than one person were raised from the dead. Within a few days of Jesus telling this very story. Even though one of the people was named Lazarus, so they couldn't miss the point. Even then, these same guys would be involved in putting Jesus to death. And, and when they learned He was raised from the dead, even then they did not believe. Even though Jesus in grace made His identity and the truth of His Word impossible to miss, they were determined to miss it. And so, ultimately, at least as the Scripture presents their unbelief, all of those men were condemned. But men and women, even though we are rightly, I think, shocked and appalled that the Pharisees missed who Jesus is and they closed their eyes to impossible-to-miss miracles, testifying to Jesus' identity as the Son of God and the Messiah, I am not nearly as concerned for them as I am for us. Because the reality is, is that those guys are long gone. And their destiny is whatever it is. But there is still time for those of us who are still alive today. Jesus tells this story to those who will soon conspire to kill Him that they might be saved. Think about that. Jesus tells this story to the same people who will vote in just a few days to put Him to death, hoping that they will repent and be saved. But men and women, 
boys and girls, this story is in our Bibles for the same reason it was given to its original hearers. To warn us about hell and to invite us to turn away from all of the other things that we have trusted in. And to believe in Jesus instead of reject Him. Because if we reject Jesus, the same thing will happen to us that happened to the rich man. We will spend eternity in Him. We have one person in whom there is salvation. And your current social status will do nothing for you in eternity. Your riches will not buy heaven. Your religious actions of good deed doing will never be sufficient. And they will not outweigh anybody's sins. Even though that's a very popular notion. That your sins and your good deeds are put on a balance. And if your good deeds are, are, are more than your, your evil, then you enter into glory. That's not the Bible that tells, tells you that. That's the Egyptian book of the dead. The Bible says there is one way and one way only that God has no grandchildren. That He only has children. And they enter His family by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by adoption they are adopted into God's family by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. So anyone who is here who has not believed in Jesus, you need to heed the warning because someone has come back from the dead to tell you not to go to that terrible place, but to instead believe in Jesus Christ and enter into the joy of heaven in, and receiving the riches of Christ and the reward of the saints and the honor of being seated at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And you don't want to miss one single thing of these blessings because you think that your good deeds or your riches or your ancestry or your status or some other temporary foolish thing will gain you heaven. It will not. There's one door into the kingdom of heaven and His name is Jesus. There's one sacrifice for your sins. His name is Jesus. There is one man whose riches gained for us at the cross are sufficient to pay your way into the kingdom of heaven and His name is Jesus. So don't miss the opportunity presented to you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, don't wait any more. The cemetery is full of people who believe they had lots of time. No one knows the day they will die and face the Lord. But today, the Scripture says, is the day of salvation. And there may not be another day. There may not be another chance for you to believe and receive salvation instead of God's judgment. And if you already know Christ, by the way, this is an encouragement for you and for me. Can I just encourage you to make 
the way of salvation known to everyone you know. Make the way of salvation known to everyone you know. Because if hell is real, like Jesus says it is, and I always trust the word of a man who came back from the dead, hell is real, and it is inescapable, and it is eternal. If that is true, how much do you have to hate someone not to share the gospel with them? Being very blunt. Men and women, we are entrusted with the good news of the gospel which brought us salvation from sin, from death, from hell, from separation from God. And instead, we have been given the blessings of adoption into God's own family indwelt by His Holy Spirit, uh, given spiritual gifts to serve and encourage the body of Christ. We have been given uh, membership in God's own house. We cannot keep that a secret. Not if hell is real. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us. Father, make us passionate about the Gospel. Make us the sort of people, as Spurgeon said, who if people go to hell, let them go despite our begging them to stay. May they leap over our dead bodies having pleaded with them and clung to their knees saying, do not go to that terrible place. Instead, come, enjoy your Master's happiness. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and escape from that and receive instead membership in God's family. Father, let no one go unprayed for. Let the Gospel go unshared with no one that we know and love. Father, may even strangers hear the Gospel pour forth from our lips. Because Father, we know what it is to fear You and to fear Your judgment. And we also know what it is to be loved with an everlasting love. Father, let us declare them both to all who need to hear. And Father, if there's anyone here who has to this point rejected Jesus as King, who has crowned themselves King, Father, may they be deposed off the throne of their own life and put Jesus there instead. Put their trust in Him today and receive salvation. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name for all these things. Amen.